ourselves and look nice and all of the things that we try and do on a Sunday and then to get rained on. Um, Lord, we're grateful for the, the weather and, and just in your sovereignty for bringing it and the, the ground needs it. And uh, so we're grateful for that. But we are grateful for this place and what you have uh, given to us in terms of a, a meeting place for Hope Bible Church. And so we pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us um, here this morning, that the words that I say would be uh, only guided by your Spirit and that you would be made much of. And Lord, that we would just seek to, to even as David said earlier, understand the Scriptures And so, God, I pray that you would help us to do that this morning with unveiled faces that we can behold your glory and be transformed. So I pray that you would help us to do that. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're going to be back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. And uh, while you're turning there, yeah, are you going to hit those lights? It's a couple of them. That one, I think, that one, boom. And Tyler said it's the, the circle. On the end. Yep, I think so. Yep. Now we're cooking with gas. Okay. While uh, you're turning to Second Corinthians, I'm going to tell a little story about uh, a, a shepherd and a giant that many of you know. Um, as many of you know, I, a couple weeks ago I got to go to Israel, and uh, we stood at this place called Azika. And Azika is a, a, a town village at the top of this hill. Um, that overlooks the Valley of Elah. And the Valley of Elah is the famous place where David fought Goliath. And, you know, David David was bold, right? He was bold because he had a hope. And I want to just read a couple of passages from that story that relay uh, what's, what's happening there. So David was told by his father to go and take his brothers. He's a young shepherd, so he was told to take his brothers some food. And so he does, and while he's there, he hears this giant Philistine just, you know, ribbing the Israelites, making fun of their God, and and David, who is a follower of Yahweh, is saying, you know, why are you guys letting him do this? You know, why are your hearts failing because of this giant? And, 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 you know, so eventually he's saying this, and he gets in front of Saul, the king, and, and he's like, let me fight him, and Saul's like, you can't fight him. And David says this, paraphrase, I used to keep sheep for my dad. Uh, and, and if a lion or a bear would come and take one, I'd go get it back. And if that lion pursued me, I'd, I'd grab it by the beard and I'd punch it in the face. Right? And so, I said it was a paraphrase. I think it's the, never mind. Um, so, so, which is a remarkable thing. And so Saul basically says, okay, go. And so he puts on this armor and the sword and he can't do it. You know, it's, he's too small for this big armor. And so he goes and he gets some stones. And this is actually a stone from the brook of Elah. Um, now, it was actually, the one he used was probably the size of a baseball, but when you're traveling and you can only have 50 pounds, uh, this is what the kids get. So, but let it be a reminder. So he took a stone like this, and he went out to meet the, the Philistine. And uh, so when he goes out, Goliath says this, he says, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this 
assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So David was bold. Now, let's just say, for argument's sake, that David is about my height, um, which I know I look tall up here, but I'm actually quite short. So, it would be like me standing in front of a, you know, eight, nine foot guy and just, you know, wagging my finger at him. And this giant is standing with sword and, and spear and javelin just cursing this kid. And David's just talking to him like he's fighting a three-year-old, right? And he is bold and he had confidence that the fight was going to go his way, not because of his ability, but because of the ability of the one who, on behalf who he's fighting for, of God, of God's ability. And so, and we know that he did win the fight. And this morning I want to talk about boldness. I want to talk about boldness that comes through having hope. Okay, so uh, the last few weeks David's been talking about Paul's defense of his ministry uh, and, and the, to the Corinthian church and, and, and these teachers are influencing the, the Israelites to try and, and we don't know exactly what it is, but in some capacity they're teaching them to go back to a law that is based on, on or based on a good, good works, you know, a gospel that is based on good works and, and adhering to the law. Uh, to, and he's leading them away. And Paul uh, says, listen, the, the glory of the old covenant is passing away. And, the, and now the new covenant's glory uh, is here and it will never fade because it's eternal. You know, have you ever walked through a dark room with you know, your, your iPhone flashlight and you're walking through and then you hit the light switch and that light becomes obsolete on your phone. Right? It's, it, you don't need it anymore because the, the greater light is, is showing. Right? You don't even know that it's on half the time. And that's, that's basically what's happening here. This new light is here. This new glory is here. And it's eternal and it's not going anywhere. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3.10 said, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Okay, it's, the, the old covenant was meant to lead to an understanding of sin and a need for a Savior and how you were to interact with God who is, who is living amongst them. But now... Uh, it was never meant, but it was never meant to save. It was ne- that was never the point. It was always salvation was always through faith, and so uh, now Paul is going to shift away from that argument and talk about what it means to be a follower of this new covenant, where what that brings him, how it changes the way he does ministry. So let's start reading in ver- cha- uh, chapter three, Second Corinthians chapter three, starting in verse twelve. Since we have such a hope. We are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom." And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So I just want to walk through the passage. I just want to help us seek to understand what it's saying and then maybe how we can apply some of this to our lives. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, what, what is the hope? Right, David's been talking about it the past few weeks. It's the hope that the new covenant is, is far surpassed the old covenant and its glory, and it's caused the old, glories, old covenant's glory to come to an end. Paul doesn't need to worry that there's going to be a greater, greater new covenant. 
Right? This is it. This is the, the new covenant. It's eternal. It's not going anywhere. He can be all in on this covenant and, and, and this ministry. Right? And, and so he doesn't have to worry about that coming to an end. And he says, We are bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And there's some, there's some theological discussion as to, you know, we know he's going to Exodus 34 and, and talking about this and, and the why Moses put the veil over his face. Um, some scholars think it was, you know, so that he wouldn't bring glory to himself when he was, you know, he would talk to God and, you know, had this talk to them and then have this veil over his face, you know, and, and oh, I don't want to bring gl- glory to myself in my normal conversations. But it, that, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense because, you know, you know, everybody, one, knows that it's Moses, and two, you're walking around with a veil over your face, which would be kind of, you know, it, just everybody knows that it's you, and it would be awkward to act like you didn't, your face wasn't glowing or you didn't have a veil over it, okay? I think more of what's going on here is that because we know that he would go in and talk to God, veil removed, and he would talk to God, he would come out and talk to the Israelites, and the veil would be over his face, but when the minute he would leave that tent, the glory of, the, the shine of his face would start to, to to go away. Okay, and it would come back when he would go speak to God again, but it would start to go away. And so what I think is going on here, and what I think some a lot of scholars think is going on here, is Paul seems to make the point that, that Moses knew that the glowing of his face was fading and was concerned that if the Israelites knew that, they because of their stiff stiff neckness, their rebellious nature, that they would turn away from the message of God. Right? They were really enthralled by the glowing, the, the, the miraculous stuff, but the actual message, uh, it seems as though that the Israelites had a tendency to turn away, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, and, which is interesting, because we know that he would boldly go in before God, and, but to the Israelites, it was, it was as though Paul is saying he wasn't as bold as he could have been, and should have been. And, but, but Paul does make it clear that it wasn't the message that was causing the Israelites to turn away. It was their hard heart, or their hard minds, that was causing them not to see the truth of the message. Their minds were veiled. They, they couldn't understand. As David made a couple weeks ago the statement that their vision was obscured, right? And so Paul, ha- uh, Paul has a little bit of a wordplay. You know, he says uh, that their, their, Moses' face was veiled, but their minds were veiled. And he says, to this day, when the law is read, that the same veil remains over their hearts. Paul was speaking about his contemporaries, you know, 40, 50 AD, the Jews that were still adhering to that law, that old covenant, that veil still remained. But uh, as I said, I was there three weeks ago, and and the veil is still there. The veil is deeply there in, in, in Israel and all over the world. So it's the, the when the Jews still read the law, many of them, uh, they await this Messiah, and they miss the reality that he has, he has come. And he's already established this new covenant that is greater than the one by which they are uh, trying to adhere to, that the Messiah was Jesus who came and who we got to celebrate this past week. And, and you know, for what it's worth, just you know, speaking of the trip, the, we got to crawl all over these places that Jesus stood Right, that he was actually there, and he would preach sermons, and he would, you know, where you know, we took a boat over where he's walking on water, and this stuff, and, and they're there, and they're they they miss it, and they they have the privilege of being there, and they miss it because of their veil, their hard heartness of this veil. Um, but the reality is, it's not just the Jews that that fall under this trap. The veil thinking is 
is fairly normal, especially as we look, especially as we look out to the world around us. It's not just the Jews that are adhering to this. It's, it's anyone who's, who looks at the message of Jesus and doesn't understand it. All right, people, people have, come, <coughs> excuse me, have come up with an understanding of how the world works, how it operates, why it does what it does, and, and they're either slaves to literally the old covenant that has faded with its glory, or uh, slaves to, to the demands of whatever God they're choosing to follow. So, they, you know, they want to understand the rules of the God they worship. You know, how does it work? What does it demand of me? How do I exercise my allegiance to this God? How, does, what, how do I appease it when it gets angry? Right? The, the people are, are worshipers, and they, they want to understand, and they want to worship rightly. And this could be something that is outside of themselves, or many times it is their actual self. And then they try to seek to apply it to their lives and hope that it brings them joy and fulfillment only to have it ultimately crumble because we know that anything that bears the weight of worship will actually crumble except for God Himself. So we see this veiled understanding of the world and morality play out all the time. Um, and, and just to, I want to talk about a couple quick examples uh, of how this works. But, but when you start to understand this, you'll start to see it more and more. Uh, one, one, and I don't know why this is the one that came to me, but the theory of evolution, right? Like, the theory of evolution. How did life come to existence? Well, there was some stuff that existed billions of years ago, and that stuff became more stuff, and eventually life, and uh, maybe there was a bang, and the bang set the catalyst going, but nobody knows where the stuff came from or how the bang happened, but, you know, it did, and now billions and billions of years later, there's, like, apes, and then apes became, like, man but, you know, you feel bad for the apes that didn't, didn't quite make it. Now they're in zoos, but man's walking around looking at those apes. And, it, you know, so this is the theory. And, and this kind of theory is first set forth really by a guy named Charles Darwin, who basically came to the conclusion that survival of the fittest. Okay, so that's generally the theory. Now, I think that personally, I think that the science uh, breaks down. But I think it actually breaks down on a moral level. And here's why. You can't be a student and an advocate for evolution and be a proponent of social justice. You just can't do it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for you to uh, teach and, and be a proponent of survival of the fittest and then desire to help the poor. Right? Desire, desire to help those who are sick and needy. Right? Why? Because ultimately, what, what are we doing? We're... we're you know, caressing the face of those who are eventually going to be destroyed by us anyway because we're stronger? Like, it doesn't make sense. That's failed thinking. It doesn't even start to make sense. In fact, why, why do we, especially as Christians, but why do even non-believers think of things like any type of Holocaust? Let's go World War II, let's go Rwanda, any type of Holocaust. Why does that seem so atrocious to us if evolution is true? Right? It, it should actually, we should be proponents of that. Because we're the strong, right? It doesn't make sense. In fact, unfortunately, the one place that I think society gets this right is the atrocity that is abortion. Right? It's, it's inconveniencing me. I don't like it. it, it it's a, a wrench in my plans. Right? And I'm not speaking, you know, if, if, if that has been a part of anybody's life, I'm not trying to, you know, make fun or poke fun at that. There are lots of reasons that people claim to... to desire to get abortion but ultimately there we had a plan it didn't we didn't want that to be the plan and we're going to take care of it and that's survival of the fittest you see 
being a, an evolutionist and yet a proponent of social justice just doesn't make sense on a moral level. It's failed thinking. Okay, so that's one. And then, of course, you know, we, I'm, I'm the counseling guy, so we talk about care all the time, right? And we counseling. But if the best that we have to offer people is to feel better or improve their situation, it shows that the person's joy and fulfillment ultimately is rooted in their feelings or their situation. Right? And that's not true. It's, it's, it's found in living out the purpose of their life, which is to please God and glorify God. Right? Counseling and care is only as helpful as, as much as we can help a person live in light of the gospel and their purpose. So care that is completely self-focused is veiled thinking. Right? But the idea that this life is not your own, that you've been crucified with Christ, and that there's freedom in, in, in giving your life away, that is unveiled thinking. That is different. Okay? So... so Living with this mind that is veiled and its thinking makes one unable to see the need for the new covenant of which Paul is a minister. So the only remedy is to turn to Christ and to trust Him for salvation and for His blood to to cover our sins. And Paul says this in verse 14, only through Christ is the veil removed. And then again in 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So only through Christ is the veil removed taken away. Jesus says the same thing in John 14, 16. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus alone can remove the veil. That's the ministry. That's the message that Paul so boldly proclaims. And he can boldly proclaim it because the hope he has in the new covenant and the confidence that it will never fade away. That there's not going to be something better that's going to come along later. Whose glory, this, this glory outshines the, uh, the glory of the old covenant. It's so much so that it has made it fade away. So what is life like without a veil on our minds and our hearts? What is it, what is it like? And Paul tells us in 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You know, and there's been, again, some theological discussions, historic confusion, I think, about this passage, because, you know, he was just talking about Jesus, and now he's talking about the Spirit, and which one is it that, that takes away the veil, and isn't Jesus a man, and aren't we supposed to understand him as a man? And if you look at the context of chapter 3 as a whole, it actually makes a lot of sense. You see, Paul's been talking about the greater glory of the new covenant, which is of the Spirit, versus the, the lesser glory of the old covenant, which is about the law. And the old covenant, one related to God, through the covenant of the, 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 old, the law, the covenant of the law, and in the new, this new covenant, we relate to God through the Spirit. And also in verse 16, it says, you know, when one turns to the Lord, it's not necessarily talking about Christ specifically. You know, it says that through Christ, the veil is removed. So when one turns to the Lord, the point is this. When people turn to God through Christ, only then is the veil removed, and they realize that the time of the old covenant, which is with its adherence to the law, is over. And the new covenant, which is adherence to life in the Spirit and following the Spirit, has come. And then this now becomes the way in which we relate to God and understand, experience God now through the Spirit. And so when believers uh, experience God through the Spirit, there's a new way of existing. And, and it's available not to those whose minds are veiled, but only to those whose minds are unveiled. And that is a life of freedom. Right? I mean, Q. William Wallace, you just want to scream it, like freedom. And, and I think it's Braveheart, I haven't seen it in a while, but not the William Wallace thing, I know that's Braveheart. But is, is Gladiator or Braveheart the one where he says, every man dies but not every man truly lives? Right? 
That's that's a true statement. Or it might not be either. But that's a true statement. Right? Like, a lot of people live and die, but not many truly live. And it's those who have unveiled thinking that truly live and are truly free. Because when believers... Well, where the law reigns, there's bondage and there's slavery. And there's death. And where the Spirit reigns, there is freedom. And this keeps in perfect step with what Paul taught in, or teaches in Galatians 5.1, which is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And the amazing thing that Paul uses Exodus 34 is so interesting is because the Israelites had a proclivity. They had a tendency to want to go back to Israel where they were enslaved and in bondage because they thought it was better. Back to Egypt, but because they thought it was better. You know, they were out in the desert complaining, if only we could go back to Egypt, at least there we had bread. And you know, Paul knows that same thing about Christians, especially this new covenant that is being introduced. The, the, the tendency is going to want to go back and adhere to that law and, and live under that law. And, and at least there's some kind of like borders to understand how we can you know, be good enough. You know, we can adhere to that law. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the new covenant. That's not what Christ purchased on the cross. It's actually the opposite of that. It's different than that. And it's not freedom. And Paul teaches this not just to, to, to the Corinthians or to the Galatians. He says it you know, everywhere he sends letters. These are just, I'm going to read four quick passages from the book of Romans that say what it is about the new covenant that is so amazing in, in, in terms of the difference between living under law versus living under the Spirit. Romans 4, 6 through 8 says this, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his, his sin. And so, under the new covenant, there's no remembrance of sin. There's no remembrance of sin. Okay, Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's no condemnation. Right? If you're living in, with a spirit of condemnation, you're not living under the New Testament. You're adhering once again to the old covenant. Romans 8.15-16 says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we didn't receive that spirit of slavery. Right? We didn't receive the spirit that, uh, of, of slavery to fall back into it. We received the spirit of sonship. And the Holy Spirit actually bears witness that we are children of God. And Romans 8, 3 and 4 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So by walking in the Spirit of this new covenant, the righteous requirements of the law are actually fulfilled in us. So you see, the, the hope that Paul has in Christ in this new covenant makes him bold, it makes him free. Free to speak to the Corinthians and to minister to them without losing heart. These people are attacking his ministry and he's saying, listen, I'm not worried about that because my ministry is from the Lord, it's of this new covenant and that is not going to go away. And here's the thing, he's not, uh, he's not touting that because of his ability. It's always been the ability of God and his ability to keep his own covenant. So then in closing this portion of the argument, Paul says, And we all, 
with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul again alludes to Exodus 34, because you know Moses did not lack boldness. Uh, even though he lacked boldness in front of the Israelites, he didn't lack boldness in front of God, which is so interesting. But he would walk in and just boldly speak to God, unveiled face, and just gaze into and behold God in all of His glory, face to face. And Paul is saying, believer, believer, you too, we too, all of us whose minds are unveiled, we behold this glory. We can look look into the face of God and behold this same glory. And there's this there's this kind of thread in Christianity right now that uh, man, if we just if we just sit, and we just think, and we you know clench our fist, or you know maybe meditate or whatever, and just think about God's glory. Look at this glowing light that I see behind my eyelids, and just really like fight really hard. My heart will be transformed, and I can go out and just be a good Christian. Because I've thought about God's glory. That's what he's saying here. I'm beholding the glory. Amen. And I'm a, and I'm a, I'm a better Christian now because of it. And that's absolutely not what Paul is saying here. Now, I'm not saying every once in a while you shouldn't stop and think about how good God is and what he actually says and what he, you know, just... It's not about works, right? Think about how good he is and, and, and th- that's okay. That's not wrong. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Okay? He's saying... Well, let's say this. Paul is talking about meeting with God, listening to Him, and doing what He was saying. Because Moses would go in, hear from the Lord, go out and talk to the Israelites about how to live and how to act and how, what to do. Okay? And, and the, the verb that's used here is this verb, metamorpho. And it's, it means, literally means to transfigure or to change. Okay? It's used four times in the New Testament. Twice talking about transfiguration in Matthew and Mark. Once here, and then once in Romans 12, 2, which says, Do not conform to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Paul is clearly talking about moral transformation. Right? Don't conform to the world. Right? The, there's a way that seems right to man, but then the end leads to death. We don't conform to that. We're going to live and act differently than the world does. Okay? He's talking about moral transformation, but he's not just changing, talking about changing action only. He's talking about a changed heart, changed motivation, why we do the things we do. It, we're, we're actually being transformed. Okay, and and it was never. And here's why: it was never about just following the law with the right action, right? To adhere to the law perfectly would have been to adhere to the right action and the right motivation, our right heart. That's what makes Christ's uh, perfect life so incredible. If we really think about it, not only did he not sin in action, but he didn't sin in motivation either. Right? If we, we know our own hearts and we know that, yeah, maybe I didn't scream or maybe I didn't, whatever, but if you have anger against your brother, you have committed murder, is what Jesus says. Okay? And so it's not just the right action, it's the right heart, the right motivation. And when the fact that Christ did this perfectly can only be achieved by life in communion with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. And so what do we do then? How do we... Behold, right? Because we are told, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. So it's this, we, we, we whose minds are no longer veiled, we get to gaze into the glory of God, as in a glass or a mirror, is what the, the language is. And we get to see it clearly, not obscured. It's not obscured for us anymore. We get to understand, understand it in the person and work of Jesus. 
And we do this through learning about Him in His Word, what He says, and then applying it to our lives. Okay? When we do this, we are changed. We are changed by the Holy Spirit into, the, into Christ-likeness from one degree of glory to the next. And we know this is the case because Paul is telling us this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Gospel tells us that we uh, who were unable to behold the glory of God are now able. We're, our minds are unveiled. We can, extreme, we can see this extreme glory, this extreme weight, as we know the word is. And a chapter later he says, you know, these light momentary reflections are, are preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Right? We have to be transformed, otherwise we would be crushed under the weight of glory. Is what that passage is saying. More on that later. Or in a couple weeks. Um, but the chains of, of bondage and sin and death and performance are loosened if, when we are in Christ. Right? And we're free to pursue Christ. We, we don't have to believe it's our performance or our abilities or our goodness that, that saves us or changes us. Rather, it's, it's Christ and, and the freedom that, that following Him brings. Right? Like, bur- it's not burdensome to pursue Christ. And so we're free because we are no longer yoked to, to the things that, that we uh, understand to save us in terms of the law, but rather we are free because we don't have to do those things. And that's the glory of the new covenant, that Christ has done that for us. And as Romans says, when we, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us when we live a life uh, led by the Spirit. So, just to kind of close, uh, Paul, again, Paul has this hope in this new covenant, in this new and lasting eternal freedom, right? He's bold to act in this freedom and to be a minister of this gospel, okay? And he's, he's not afraid of what people are going to try and do to bring down his ministry. And like Paul, we too should, can and should have this confidence, right? This boldness, right? The, the, the dictionary defines boldness as uh, courageous and confident, okay? It's, and it's boldness, it's not arrogance, Arrogance is a, a, an exaggerated sense of self and our abilities. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's never said that. He's, he's the opposite. He's bold because the, the person that is driving the, tra- the, the ship is better and has better abilities and is more capable of keeping his covenant than he is. And he has confidence in that. Okay, so, so as you know, we go into 2019 and, and Hope Bible Church, you know, it's, again, I mentioned this at the Christmas Eve service, we weren't even really supposed to start until February, but here we are gathered together, and it's, it's amazing that God has done this. And we, we believe that God has done this and started this for, for us as a body of believers to be built up and sent out to the city, to our area of town that we will be, and to your spheres of influence. Right to, to proclaim this message, not in an arrogant way, but with a boldness. That we don't have to worry about that this gospel isn't sufficient, that this scripture isn't sufficient, that this thing that we are talking about isn't accurate and right. So we want to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus in 2019 here at Hope. And finally, we want to boldly seek the glory of God in the scriptures and apply it to our lives. In my kind of short time of pastoring and, and, and just as a Christian and my own personal experience, um, especially down in the South, if you will, uh, it's not always the knowing, it's the applying that, that we really have a struggle with, right? And, and, and it is partly knowing, you know, myself included. I think it's a little bit arrogant to, to think that we know all the things that Jesus asks us to do and commands us to do, 
But a lot of it we, we tend to know. And that's not really the struggle. The, no, the struggle tends to be applying it to our lives and being changed by that. When we actually do right action, John 14 says that, you know, he who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and, and he, my, he will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So we get more of Jesus when we obey his commands, okay? But it's not always the knowing that's the problem, it's the applying. And so what we want to, you know, actually James, the brother of Jesus, says this very thing. In James chapter 1, he says, But be doers of the word, not hearers, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, and he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And this is why our church body, our community... It's so important, right? It's important to be known and to know one another because we, we have to exhort one another daily and encourage one another daily to pursue Christ's likeness. And that's just not the weekly like get-together where we pat each other on the back. It's like, no, how are you doing? What are you struggling with? Where is your marriage failing? It's clearly not perfect. You know, students, you know, you had a fight with your parents, okay? Well, what's going on in your heart that's causing your parent and you to act that way? What's conflict? Well, you know, you had a desire and you didn't get it, so you murdered. That's what James 4 says. What's going on that we could always be transformed more and more and more into Christ-likeness? And until we, you know, the Lord lets our time expire or He comes back, we need to be pursuing this and beholding the glory of God and be tr- being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Christ says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, it might seem burdensome. Like, man, God, He requires so much of us. But Jesus says, no, it's, it's freedom. It's a lighter load. Are you kidding me? To try and earn righteousness, to try to adhere to that old law of... of and not that the law is bad. Right? God gave us the law. But to adhere to it, thinking that it will bring salvation, is wrong. And, and Jesus clearly says this to the Pharisees. Right? And so, so that's what we want to do. We want to live and apply the scriptures to our lives because it's transforming, because it changes us. And so let us all, with unveiled face, behold Christ in the scriptures, right, and be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, into Christ-likeness, okay, because there's freedom there. And that's what we, we I want to live free. I don't want the burden of, of guilt and the burden of shame and the burden of, of sinful life on me because I can't earn my righteousness. Right? And I need you all to tell me when I'm wrong. You know, and, and you need, not to boast myself, but you need me to tell you when you're wrong. And each other. And we need to do that together. So as we move into, we're going to move into the Lord's Supper. And actually I do want us to take some time to reflect. You know, some time to remember and to understand this, this new covenant. By which we, have, we can have this hope. And we can be bold to boldly enter into the throne room of God and encounter Him and gaze upon His face in the Scriptures. And we have to remember that this was purchased through Christ. who We celebrated you know, incarnation, the baby who grew up into, Christ, into a man and had a ministry by which He ended with His death. Okay, but then He, was, he rose from the dead. And so we, we want to take the Lord's Supper together and remember that, that this new covenant isn't possible without that. So, I'm going to pray, and the, the men can come down and hand out the elements, and just hold it, and we'll, we'll take it together. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your, 
new covenant by which you have seen fit to, uh, first off, allow us to enter into with you by your blood, that you purchased it by your blood, Jesus, and, and secondly, that you allow men like Paul and men and women like us to be ministers of and to live out and live in a way that that, that glory reflects even in our lives. And so that we can, you know, the world and ourselves would be transformed by that. And so God, I pray that you would help us now to, to remember and to behold your glory through the supper, through your word, and, and that we would live by your spirit. God, we love you. We thank you for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.